The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. What are you eating? Uh, what? Dude, mic is on the floor. That can't be good. Is that better? <laughs> it is so much better. Oh, thank you. How did you know I was eating something? Did I just put something in my mouth? Yeah, you're like doing the thing when yeah, people just, have food I, in their mouth. Yeah, I did that. I did that. Very to my OT observational skills. I need to be fed. (laughs) My friend that I went to OT school with just texted me today Mm. a picture of this piece of adaptive equipment that she designed. What? Yeah. It's a Tilton feed. I'll show you the picture here. Cool name. It is a cool name. Her uh, PT, her PTA colleague helped her name name it. Can you see? It's kind of a. So it takes the plate, and instead of being flat on the table, it sort of faces it towards you a little bit. Mm-hmm. So really, what she invented was a, an adjustable angled surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it kind of rubberized on the bottom, so it'll hold whatever you put on it. Well, we did talk about that. That has to be added. This is her first um, prototype. Her, her first prototype. Yeah. I was telling her I attended a continuing education over the summer about 3D printing labs and how how accessible they are in communities. She lives in North Carolina and she just she found a person and it's a guy. You know, it's a retired guy who does this and he he takes on projects that he thinks would benefit people. Wow, what a guy. You know, I know, right? So did you know I have a um an arm skate? No, I did not know skate? you have an arm skate. Why would you have one of those? No, I mean I don't actually I own fifty of them, but I'm I sell oh. I sell them. You do? I don't sell very well, but they're kind of cool. They it's it's on my blog. It's ha- it's an arm skate and it has a trough for the arm mm-hmm. and it has a bar. You know how arm skates their their arms are always strap pronated. Yeah. And that's dumb for a stroke survivor because that's the position the arm wants to go in typically. Right. Yeah, or they're hard supinated if the biceps is spastic anyway. So mine has a bar that they hold on to. I'm looking and, it up. 
and you you can roll it back and forth but what i like about it is that that bar that they're holding on to a theraband can go around and then it straps to like a chair or something so you can activate all the flexors that cause the hemiparetic posture across the chest and reestablish brain control over those using my neuroplastic model i you did show me this one time oh did i i forgot sorry so the the thing that reminded me of it was the 3d printing because Mm -hmm. i went to china to get them made and Oh. Um, it kind of didn't work out because they didn't get the angle of something right. So now I got to take mm. them out of the box and retrofit them. Anyway, long story. So that's cool. I hope she um, hope she does well with that. I hope she does too. It's just fun to be connected with people who are thinking and doing stuff to make life better for people that we work with. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So are we ready? Yeah, we're ready. I think we're doing it. I think we so, are too. Hey, Deb Badastella, how you doing? Pete Levine, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. What's new? Like, what have you been doing lately? How are the how are the students and how's the family? And the students are great. They great. They love you. They just they don't even know you except through the podcast, and they just love you. So that's fun. Oh well, that's yeah. great. Do they mm-hmm. love you, or can they not express that love because you're the teacher? They say they love me. I mean. Wow. Yeah. I love the podcast. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, I do have something new. Wow. I know. So over the summer, whatever that was, it, I don't, I'm not really sure because I feel like my sense of time is not correct these days. Maybe it'll come back. But I don't really worry about it. Um, so a colleague of mine and a colleague of his, we all put our brains together and we submitted a proposal to the American Occupational Therapy Association to present at the conference in the spring and we got approved. Wow. Yeah. So that's the national conference. Mm -hmm. And where is it? It is in Texas. It's in Texas. And do do they, will they pay for your airfare and all that stuff? No, I'm hoping that my employer will because it's beneficial to the program. Yeah, they probably will. Well, I would hope they would. Well, we're talking about it. So they're doing their best to help. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that'll be fun. I know. I'm excited about it. It's for all of of that uh, mental health college campus stuff. So it's not related to physical medicine at all, but it's the mental health component, which I think, you know, that applies across the lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. Mental health. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Maybe one or two lifespans. Yeah. That's that's cool. (laughs) What's the gist of your um, talk as it comes to fruition? It will be um, emotional and mental well-being on college campuses. So focused on the students, even though our pro- the program that we did, we focused on the entire campus because if it starts with uh, faculty and staff, then the students will be- get the help that they need. But um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So your talk is coming up soon. Well, funny story that you're talking about ACRM. Yes. Here's what happened. I'm not a big fan of ACRM at all. So this is what they they did. Um, So it got to crunch time. I had recorded it and I had presented it to them. I jumped through every hoop they wanted me to and I registered. And uh, two or three days before it, they said, well, you registered but you didn't pay. I was like, I'm a speaker. Why am I paying? I've done the Ohio Physical Therapy Association, Kentucky Physical Therapy Association, the Ohio Occupational Therapy Association, the Kentucky Occupational Therapy Association. I've done all kinds of talks for free and there's no expenses because it was there was no flights or rental cars or any of that stuff, but they wanted me to pay 
pay to do the talk. It was pay to play. And I suspect that what they did was they accepted anybody who wanted to do a talk. So if nobody showed up at their talk, okay, they still got their $169 or their $700. It's outrageously expensive. So I've done 800 talks plus, and they wanted... Like I get me doing something gratis to help them out, but they didn't, that wasn't enough for them. They wanted me to pay to do something gratis for them. I'd never heard of a thing. Like if I do it for the, the Ohio Physical Therapy Association, you know, they'll give me that day that I'm doing it for free because I'm doing it that day. And I actually never show up at anything else because I'm exhausted by the time I do my talk. But these guys wanted me to do the talk for them and then pay them to do the talk for them. It was unbelievable. So I said, pull my talk. I'm not interested. I see what this is. This is a some sort of weird bait and switch or something. Do they have the recording now? Yeah, they do. And I said, please, uh, you know, delete it. And they said they would. Hmm. Yeah, I, I asked that because it's like, well, mm, I know. so ACRM, a little little sketchy move there. And uh, yeah. yeah, I'm willing to go to war about this one because it really, really pissed me off. But I had some good news today. What's that? So I did my big talk, my neuroplasticity talk for the PTA students at the college I work in. And I got to say, they were really attentive and they seemed like they got some, they got something out of it and they absorbed it. The neuroplastic model of spasticity reduction. And we talked about where some of the neurofacilitation things set in and the other professors were there and we got into a really cool discussion. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast. I, I played a little bit of the T-cell interview and, um, and I was like, you know, I do it with um, an occupational therapist, Deb Baditzella, and she works in a school that's in Western New York and just near the border of Pennsylvania. I hope I got that right. And she had told her OT OTA students about it because she teaches an OTA program and they said they really liked it. So I'm telling you about it and I'm hoping I'm going to get some PTA students to say that they really like it because it's not just for OTA students. It could be for PTA students. And um, so we had a good old time today and I was very happy about that. That's awesome. I love students. I love student energy. It's challenging when they just kind of look at you But I think a lot of people take information in and they need some time to process it. Yeah. You know, it's the end of the A semester for us. And then um, it was a beautiful day out. Uh, They had a lecture, a guy lecture them yesterday and he it was tough it was a tough one because there was a lot of information and then today i i sensed that it, it could have gone south if i got too in the weeds so i just try to skip along the top surface and it drew them in i think in a way that i would see out of much more mature clinicians and they engaged and answered questions in a way that was like like here's i said you know do you remember what you have to do to measure spasticity with the modified ashwork now what do you have to do to the limb and somebody said um add velocity now i can i've done that same question to a whole you know dpts and ot's and a whole bunch of other people and maybe they don't want to they don't feel like answering it but maybe they don't know they forgot or something so it's good to have students just boom on it. And there was another question that I asked, like, what out of this, what of of these treatment options do you think, do you think might reduce spasticity that I've talked about today? Kid says, uh, constraint induced. And I was like, how did you know that? He said, well, you're using the brain. And so that will help recontrol the muscles. I like, what the heck? Like clinicians in 
the clinic, I don't think I ever had anybody answer that. So these kids are on it. They're smart. I'm calling them kids. You know, some of them are not super kids, but they're all kids to me. <laughs> the oldest one is two thirds of my age, but it was really um, enlightening. And, and it was just a really great experience. I was super happy to have it. Thanks, Sinclair Community College and Colette and and Heather, my um, my friends over there. That's wonderful. Yes. So forget you, ACRM. Right. Money making. Uh, yeah, things are changing these days. You know, people are desperate and they are finding some interesting ways to try to get their dollars. And people are smarter than that. Yeah. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> you are now. I did a whole lot of work and didn't even get to be heard. Anyway, okay. let's move let's- on. Yeah. So do you know what, Pete? What? Do you know that tonight we are recording episode number 40? What? Yeah. Episode 40. So 40. And we have 152 followers. And the last time I checked, which was earlier today, we had 12.3K downloads. Nice. And 57 members on Noggins and Neurons Facebook group. Oh, it's growing. Growing. It's growing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I put the, hey guys, Dev and I are just about to record. Any comments, questions, rebuttals? Anything oh that you guys want us to discuss? Let us know. And somebody uh, had a message. No questions mm-hmm. today, but thank you for the podcast. Really enjoying it. And it is genuinely changing the way I practice. <gasps> Boom. That is exciting. Particularly in relation to upper limb intervention. That's SC. Thanks, SC. I wonder what SC is. I wonder if I know who it is. PTOT. She lives in I think she's an OT. I think she's the first member of our group. What? She tried to join when I had it hidden. Oh, oh, I think. mm -hmm. See. Um, Yeah, she has a lot of patience because she's, you know, she's sticking, sticking with us through this stuff. We don't really know what we're doing. She lives in Bedford, Bedfordshire, United Kingdom. Beautiful. We should have her on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Mm hmm. I want to hear. Yeah, let's come on in. Start thinking about this, SC. Just, you know, wrap your head around it. This is going to dissuade people from putting comments because then be like, no, they're going to ask me. (laughs) We we will get you. Mm -hmm. So. So one of the things that I did in the talk today is I added a new slide. You did. And I want to tell you about it. So it's. Um, it's a neuroscientist on one side. Like yourself? It's, no, oh. it's, a, it's a real neuroscientist. Well, it's a depiction of one. It's this guy sitting in front of two computers, screens of full of MRI data or fMRI data. And on the other panel, are, are directly opposite him, is um, the first physical therapist in the United States, Mary McMillan, who during World War, as the troops were coming back, was tasked to start the first PTA program. PTs were called reconstruction aids, hmm. and which was kind of cool because they like aid reconstruction of people. They put them back together. But Mary McMillan started at Walter Reed around 1917 and set up this school. And so I have these two kind of having an argument with each other, the neuroscientist looking at all the fMRI and this woman from you know, the 1920s. And the neuroscientist says, movement is learned through repetitive practice. That's what changes the brain. Mm-hmm. And Mary McMillan says, yeah, we do that. Uh, we've been doing that for over a hundred years. And then he says, well, exercise makes learning, including motor learning easier because it produces BDNF in the brain. Bet you didn't know that. She goes, yeah, we, we've been doing exercise for over a hundred years. Yeah. Well, uh, treatment should be task specific and it should be tied to something that's salient and important to the, to the patient. She said, yeah, we do task specificity and we do salience um, in, on the PT side. It's, it's, 
really transfers and ambulation. And I did interject. OTs have an inside track on this because when they talk about, and I learned this from you and a little bit from Mary Warren, um, it's occupation doesn't mean what you do to make a living. It's whatever you want to do. It could be tennis. It could be, I think Mary Warren actually mentioned tennis. It could be anything that you really want to do. So, okay, OTs have more tools there, but but we can do it too. And we can tie it to tools in a more salient way. So now, now the uh, neuroscientist is getting frustrated and he goes, bilateral training primes the brain for motor learning. Well, I'm pretty sure gait training is bilateral and you can do that with the upper extremities too. Do you mean to tell me everything that we come up with in neuroscience you've already done? Well, well, how about this? Enriched environments primes the brain for motor learning and keeps it from globally pruning synaptic connections away. And uh, enriched environments, you know what's an enrichment environment? Exercise. And we do that, as is the social interaction between the therapist and the patient. So um, maybe you should come up with something else because we already did it. And that that's because I want the kids, the kids, the students to be drawn into this profession that they're about to go in. And they have a great inside track for helping people drive their own cortical change towards recovery. And uh, so that was that was that effort. I like it. It sounds like my department head always says, let's not forget about practice-based medicine. And I feel like with research, with the integration of research and especially the fMRI imaging that can happen now, it's coming full circle, like demonstrating what people have thought and have done for years. Am I right or am I wrong? I don't know. I mean, you mean what we have been doing on the clinical side in Mm -hmm. rehab? Yeah, Mm -hmm. of course it's coming around. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have the neuroscience say, yeah, it's not just movement that you're changing that you've been measuring forever, but that the brain is changing. Yes. That's an important part. It is an important part. And remember when years ago, when when we were young, people believed that the brain didn't change. Yeah. Well, when you mean once the, the brain was stabilized after either the seventh year or the 14th year or the 21st year or the 27th year, whenever it was, it was like blocked from mm-hmm. then on. Yeah. Yeah, it is true. Yeah. That's, that's the way we looked at it. Mm-hmm. So thanks, neuroscience, because we want to work with neuroscientists. We want to work with the um, Teresa A. Jones of the world to have them give us insight into where maybe research should go and then uh, how that can be translated into clinical practice. Mm-hmm. We do. And since you brought up Teresa A. Jones, I don't know if you knew that's what I was referring to about stupid questions when Dr. Warren was talking about the stupid question that um, landed her that uh, professional relationship, the mentorship relationship over the years. And I thought, see, we all think that we have these stupid questions, but look what they lead to. I mean, Dr. Jones also said she got away with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I asked Mary Warren a, a stupid question and she kind of, I felt like she kind of gave me the brush back. So it was, um, she says, when they have hemianopia or what I call hemianopsia, I do um, too. Old school that I am, um, they will fill in very quickly that side of the world. And I said, well, that's a bad thing, right? And of course, I, I you know, it's not good to not see half of the world and think it's there because you could get hit by a truck. Yeah. I guess what I was thinking is, you know, the fovea, she mentioned it. It's the, it's where the nerves go in to the back of the eyeball. And that is actually our blind spot because there's no reflective material or whatever picks up the light. And it would suck if we always saw a blind spot that was very well established. And I guess that's what I was thinking. If you're watching a movie, it probably would be good if you could see the whole thing, even 
even if you were making up half of it. And she, it, it is this thing in vision. We actually don't see very much. We just see a little bit. And then we paint the world around it based on previous experiences and previous saccade snapshots that we've taken. So um, I thought it was maybe not always that bad, but she was like, no, that's bad. That's really bad, Pete. That was really a dumb question. You did, did not say I that. I did but, not hear it that way. <laughs> but uh, okay. Well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm paranoid. Well, it's hard to ask a question and uh, not be nervous when you're with somebody who's done so much. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Especially when I've done that's so I, little. I, I feel don't every- know anything about vision. I warned you. I said, you better run this because I don't know. And you, you came in big because you you were like, even the stuff that she forgot, you were like, is that the XYZ thing? He, oh yeah, that that's what it was. You, you got her. So what did we learn from, from Dr. Warren? Well, we learned that nystagmus and an eye turn are easy to see, but visual field deficits are difficult, more difficult to pick up on. Hmm. Now I can see nystagmus mm-hmm. because the eyes move in a crazy way. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, what, what was it? Oh, she called uh, it an eye turn, but like, like a strabismus, you know, when the eye muscles don't really hold the eyes together in uh-huh. the same direction. Yeah. So that's when one eye moves <laughs> away from the other eye a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, those, are, those are the easy ones. And mm-hmm. then the harder ones are the visual field cuts. Yeah. And uh, because people don't always know they have them. And I thought that was interesting how she said that they won't show up for a person for a few weeks. And I can, I imagine what that might be like trying to go through life, not knowing that you have that, especially if you're experiencing that situation that she was talking about, where the brain fills in the gap of something that's not, that's not there and you don't see items in your way and how you bump into things, essentially. That would be freaky. Yeah, it would. That'd be it really- would. And it, it really, it really sheds a new light on things, especially when she was talking about how they appear to be cognitive deficits. Um, let's see, what's an example of that? That you say, why don't we walk towards that painting over there? And they're like, what painting? And you go, wow, you're not all with us. No, they can't see it. Is it would be that kind of thing? Um, maybe that, or maybe walking, looking at their feet. Like, so she mentioned two examples where they look at their feet, or maybe they could locate the painting and they just head straight for that painting. So I am. It, it would not be a normal gait pattern either way because they're protecting themselves from what they don't know might be there. Or if they are just head for it. Like she was talking about a doorway and they kind of know where it is and they just go towards it. And Mm -hmm. that can be dangerous. Yes, it can. And the thing about that is the person she said who has a hemianopia, and that's all that that's the only problem that they have. They can be rehabbed very quickly. And a lot of times it goes missed. I see. So even the therapists aren't even picking up on this Mm -hmm. really big problem. Mm -hmm. And did she give us a clue? And I think she did about when somebody comes into your facility or comes under your care, what can be done so that doesn't happen? Well, that's when she talked about that Bivaba assessment or a screening, do a vision screening first. And it seems like that assessment tool that she put together would be very beneficial for that because she tells you what to do, how to do it, and then you know what to do um, to as an intervention based on how they present. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. I wonder- I- Oh, well, I think this was one of these two episodes were two of the most important ones that we 
we have done. Yeah, they might very well be. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt you. What were you going to say? I-, I was just wondering if, like, if you wanted to get a quick test of whether there's a field cut, might you do? Is there a, a test that you know? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. How mm-hmm. many fingers am I holding up if I hold it far right? Yeah, I always um, assessed all four quadrants, held up two fingers to make sure that they would see both fingers in each quadrant, have them cover up one eye so we can uh, check one eye at a time. Yeah. I think that is that is a really important one to do because you have to know if somebody has a visual field deficit. The other thing is sometimes I wouldn't always catch those things, but people would walk into things. Like I remember walking this one person around one of, you know, one of the units. They almost walked into the doorway. There was a garbage can. They almost walked into that. Like they just kept heading towards things that were there. So then I started to think, hmm, I better check this vision a little bit more closely. And then it's the ophthalmologist and the optometrist. And it was interesting, her perspective, because in the situations that you're talking about, there may be something that an optometrist can do that it may not be like an eye problem. So what was your take on on what she was talking about there? Well, first of all, I got a little correction there too, because I used the word physician and the optometrist and the ophthalmologist apparently are not physicians. Neither of them are. Whoops. That I think that's what she said. So I think I'm I mean, I just listened to it. The ophthalmologist is, but the optometrist isn't. Okay. Let's let's figure this out. Can we please? Because I was like, ooh, I felt a little sting there when I made that blunder. Well, there's several ophthalmologists in our area. Well, that's excellent. What is is a medical or osteopathic doctor? Yeah. Well, there we go. So that one Optom- is a physician. Yeah. So you got a, you got at least half credit. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I love half credit. I love any credit I can get. <laughs> no, um, the optometrist I think is the one that you would if yeah. you get your um, eyes uh, checked for new lenses. Uh, I think it's that person. But the, apparently they can do things with prisms and blocks and all, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So what was the question? The question was. So I'm not really sure, but I'm going to say that the, an optometrist, and you mentioned that you had optometrists in your area, right? Mm, yes. And they did continuing education and they were very helpful. And she mm-hmm. was saying that it's really tough for them to stay in business for the brain injured people because you know there's just not enough business. And then everybody's referring them to the medical doctor, the mm-hmm. ophthalmologist. So it was a challenge for them. It is a challenge for them because people have to pay out of pocket because insurance does not reimburse for vision therapy, which does not make any sense to me whatsoever because a few tweaks can help a person be much more functional and independent safely. And I mean, safe and independence go together, but in the world. The last continuing education I went to, I was talking to the doctor about those big wall things. They have the DynaVision there. I was asking him about the older adult population in general, about doing activities out away from their face so that they can maintain that field of view. And he said that he never thought about that. A lot of his practice is with pediatrics, but he works with uh, stroke survivors as well. But he never thought about the adult population. And that's, I think that's when she was talking about tennis and playing sports where there's a lot of interaction and a quick response needed. Mm. Wow. That was the last uh, CEU course that you went to, continuing education course? at the, With the um, vision doctor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was right before things shut down. Might have been the last one I went to in person. I'm just looking at a, a 
quick website that's talking about neuro optometrists, neuro optometrists. And uh, let's see, people who might benefit from a referral to neuro optometry may include athletes after concussion, adults with whiplash after a car accident, elderly people with balance issues, or seemingly healthy children who are struggling in school. Mm-hmm. More than 50% of patients with TBI have eye tracking and ocular teaming difficulties, ocular teaming. I wonder if that means that they don't, the two eyes don't get together as it sounds like it. Yeah. Adding a brief neuro optometric screening to the comprehensive eye examination and asking patients few basic questions can help identify people who might benefit from a referral. So these neuro optometrists exist out there, kids. And if you're an OT, a PT, and you think somebody's struggling, just go on the Goog because the Goog's got some people that you might be able to talk to. Mm-hmm. I think we should all have the Bivaba. I don't know why so this we is, never did. W- this was a test that she developed. Right. Mm-hmm. And can you, do you have a sense of what the test is? Did we should ask her for one? We want one free. We should. It, whose house will it go to? It can go to both of our. It's a paper thing. I mean, <laughs> did I ever tell you, like, I was telling the kids today in the PTA program that a great way to get free stuff. And I've, you know, this, this e-stim with biofeedback, I have a bilateral training thing downstairs is you say, um, hello, Mr. Person who sells it. Um, I'm doing a talk to a lot of people and I wish I had your thing, but I don't have it. So, um, can you send me some crappy slides so I can show people this two-dimensional and they send it to you. So I think she could send us a copy of the test or, or, I mean, wouldn't that be okay? Well, okay, well, Deb, that's expensive. your job. You no. ask. Oh, no. No, no. No, no. It's your turn. It's my turn. It's your turn. We're, it's, this is the first time we've done it. How can it be my turn? <laughs> Girls first. All right. Hey, how do you spell it? B-I-V-I-V-A-B-A. B-A-B-A. There it is. And it's going to do something evil. I'm going to click on. Yep. Uh oh. Uh huh. There's a YouTube video. But let's see. Let's oh, well, you know, I did not. Well, I put the link for the Bivaba on the in the show notes, but I didn't. It's the same link for the YouTube video. Okay, so they it's two students. You know these cute student videos. Oh. And it's two students that the first thing is a clear vision test where okay. they have letters written out on the board. They have a string that they hold. So it's equidistant. Okay. So that's one thing. Um, now it's contrast sensitivity. What's next? Now they, they have one eye blocked, whatever that is, that test. So yeah. Um, should I put this YouTube video on the show notes? Maybe. Is it so- on the same page as the Bivaba? Uh, I didn't go there. I just went to YouTube. Oh, yeah. You should should then. (laughs) But anyway, it's two students and I can't tell where they're from, but they have black shirt. Hmm. Very nice. It does look like occupational therapy. That's what's said on on the arm armband. They're probably from the University of Alabama. Wow. Interesting. Well, that's where she taught. That's where she taught. I'm going to send you this link so that you can have a look at it and you decide what you want to do with it. Thanks. Hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing that I liked about what she was saying about that assessment is that it guides intervention and 
it, it, you have specific things that you can do right then and there to see if they get better, which will help you know what to do in your OT interventions. And I think yeah. that's where a lot of people get tripped up. Like, okay, I know we've got this problem, but I don't know how to help this person. Hmm. So we're not testing enough. And by we, I mean, occupational therapists. <laughs> yeah. Blame it on us. Right. Maybe PTs too. Um, and then once we have the information, what the heck do we do about it? Mm-hmm. How do you treat it? By the way, um, that those occupational therapist students that did the video are from Toro University in Nevada. Oh, yeah. What do I know? Bad guess. No, it's it's a good guess, but they Was are. It? That's that the, wasn't right. The, yeah, but you know how many schools are they for OT? There's like a million, so you got you guessed yeah. one. <laughs> Give yourself a break. I guess the logical one. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I liked about what she said was something that bothers me a lot because you know I'm an old guy and my vision's going a little bit, and and I have had all kinds of problems. My big one was you know I have a, a black phone, you know, and I have a black desk, oh. so I I got a yellow cover for the phone. So high contrast things, mm-hmm. then cut down clutter, whether it's a busy bedspread or whether it's a bunch of stuff on the table, because you're not going to be able to find anything. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was lighting, 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 lighting. And most of us don't have proper lighting. I know I don't. She said that people over a certain age need 80% more than people in their 20s. My That's God, why do, we, why do we even get old? It's not worth it. Well, I think it is. <laughs> I would like to not go. I'm not <laughs> I wanna ready. Stay. I want to stay. Hey, everybody. I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important. Recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes, but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's stronger after stroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple. Strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right. Yeah. Simple strategies. So in terms of contrast, something that I learned several years ago is, you know how people, they, on stairways, they'll put something on the, on the stairs. But another trick you can do is put like some red tape on the railing at the top of the railing. And that's another cue that you're at the top. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't have to look down at your feet. You can know where your feet are. Keep your hand on that railing. Oh, I see. And see. Reminds, 
me of when you do the backstroke, there's the flags that tell you you are five meters from the wall. So you don't hit your head on the wall. It's something within the line of sight that tells Mm -hmm. you about something that's outside the line of sight. Yeah. I wouldn't know. I don't do the backstroke. Yeah. Me neither, but I I I don't do any strokes. I let the pros do it because, you know, action observation, that counts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like the study that she talked about that with the adding a task light. Oh, right. You know, I just was like, wow, that is a very simple thing that I never, ever thought of. Do you want to review it or do you want me to? You probably should. Okay. So it was a study that a student or a colleague, a student of hers did. Or a student, a, yeah. A former who, student. A for, former student. And he, it was an ABAB design where they had a task light when they were grooming themselves. And then they took it away like the next day. And then they brought it back and then they took it away. And I was talking to my wife because we were listening to our podcast in oh. our car. And um, I was saying, man, that's that study didn't sound blinded because the patient knows, mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry, the client knows when uh, when the light was there and when it wasn't. And unless he had a blinded radar, like he was doing the quote treatment and somebody else was um, measuring the outcomes, then it wasn't double blinded. And it, it didn't sound like a lot of people. So I wonder if it was randomized, but still the, the basic thing was that not just that they took a lot longer and he timed the task, but that they com- the um, the client had really complained that it wasn't there anymore. Yeah. That makes sense. It does make sense. I don't really know about ABAB designs. Do you? We've had a few like that. So you give the person the intervention and then you take away the intervention and they become the control. So they can become their own control in that regard. Or you measure them for a month with nothing and then you measure them for a month with the thing. Sometimes you have a crossover design where the people who were in the control group later on get the experimental intervention and people that were in the experimental group later on get the control intervention. And so you have a, a mixing and you can really see if if your intervention works, the experimental one works, that there's a pop when they get it and then a decline when they don't. And so they everybody works as their own controls, but they're also working against the data of the other people that's being collected. I think that's kind of what they did with that study with, with the lighting. Okay. Notice I didn't ask during the podcast interview because I didn't want to seem really dumb. <laughs> but that wouldn't be really dumb. You know, it, we need to remind people that come on our podcast right up front. I think we need to double down on it. We're talking to a large swath of people. Mm-hmm. We want everybody, the The whole idea, this is called brain injury recovery simplified. So if you say something like it was an AB design, then you darn well better explain it because anybody can get their head around what I just explained to you, I think. Yeah. Thank you for that because I really, I really didn't know. Yeah. That's, that's the way that works. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else? Hmm. I have half a mind to, you know, and we can edit out of this, but I could play a little bit of, of her talking and then just riff on whatever it is that she just said. Ooh. Do you want to try that? Do you want yeah. to do um, part one or part two with her? Let's do part one. Part one, it shall be. I do have one other thing. Yes, ma'am. When we were talking about how people want to engage in occupation, they want to do the things that they want and need to do. It's not sometimes people do want to be normal the way they were before, and that doesn't happen, but it's they still want to engage in occupation. And if we help them do that, then that's one way for them to avoid depression. 
And she talked a little bit about that depression cycle and how important it is to see people in their home following rehab because people do well in rehab because we make them. You have to come, come to therapy, come spend time with me. And we don't go home with them. And if they struggle at home, and they often do, then that's when that downward spiral can happen. And I do see that in some of those TBI Facebook groups that I'm in, where people are really struggling. And I wonder how much of it is a vision problem. And we've also talked about that same population when it's depression, when they get Mm -hmm. home. Yeah. And it's also a decline physically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a a big challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we can, on that list of things that go downhill once they go home, unless you're Kathy Spencer and you're ready to go, 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 our super survivor, Kathy Spencer, people who make great gains at home once they're discharged, because people say, well, you're not going to get any better because plateau. And they just go, I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're that person, it's really easy to take a step down or go decline once you get home because there's not the push of rehab there. Yeah. And if there is that vision problem, then things are taking them longer to do. They're more difficult for them to do. They don't know why that whole fatigue factor sets in. And I can see where it would be easy to get discouraged and just kind of sit in your chair and watch TV. Yeah. And she's melded that with the whole idea that when you can't see well, you don't want to go outside your front door for a million different reasons, safety, not the least Mm -hmm. among them. And that then screws up your visual acuity because you're not looking around and looking at things. You're Mm -hmm. whatever, maybe watching the TV and that's about it. Yeah. The downward spiral. Mm -hmm. And the increased anxiety, which I had never, I never heard that. And I never thought of that. But if you don't feel safe in your environment, I can see where that would cause some fear going out and it would be challenging to be out. Yeah. That little part of the sidewalk that's sticking up that you normally would just step over all of a sudden, that can be something that can really threaten you. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Did you find some? Well, I I was going to go ahead and play a little quote from her. Okay. And I don't know if there's going to be any feedback or anything here, but I will put my mic right so you can hear too. Let me know problem. I'm just randomly picking a spot. Part of my real interest in vision really ramped up my interest in vision really ramped up when I started a driving program. That was back in the day when we didn't have driver's evaluation programs, but the center that I worked at wanted to start one. So I was put in charge of that. And when you do driving and your primary group of of, um, people that you're working with have had a brain injury, then it becomes a real question about how well do they see. So all of it just sort of came together. So she's talking about how she got into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, she talked about her mentor. Did you look that lady up? She passed away, I think, in 2016. Oh, did she? No, I didn't. I put it on the show notes. She was quite, she was a big deal. She was a pretty big deal. Well, Dr. Warren herself is a big deal. Yeah, right? Emerita. Mm -hmm. I know. Is Emerita if you're female and Emeritus if you're male or no? It must be because my friend was Professor Emeritus and he's a male. Driving more than anything, I think when people lose things out of their life because of their brain damage, it's a loss, but driving pisses them off. Mm-hmm. And uh, Doro and Lynette um, talked about that and how, how emotional it is. So I can see how uh, that uh, driving intervention with an OT might have drawn her into eyesight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's try. Do you want to try another little quote? Yeah. Did, could you hear that? Okay. I could. I'm going to randomly pick. Okay. This is minute 15. 
very difficult to see a visual field deficit. In fact, the person themselves usually is not aware that they have a visual field deficit until... We already said that, right? We did. They're not aware. Right. And the clinician often isn't testing it. Mm. So yeah, we got to get on that. All right. Here's another one. Wait, let's randomly. Wait, I have a feeling that's going to change. It's going to change because of this? Mm -hmm. I do. You agent of change. The flap of a butterfly's wing. I'm sorry. Our little caterpillars. It can can change. Here we go. Yeah. But I'm wondering if that's just because I happen to be lucky here where I live. That makes a difference. If you are teaming with an optometrist, particularly, then you're going you're gonna to cover that area. But I think largely it just it's a matter of tradition and habit, right? Mm. Um, in occupational therapy preparation programs, there's no standard that students be taught about vision impairment or low vision. Now, how is that possible? And on the PT side too. And heck, the speech therapy side, why not them too? I mean, if they're not reading signs that would affect their speech because they're not reading and this doesn't speak there. Yeah, I, like we're all kind of culpable here, not testing this stuff. We are. I would say as a person who's been teaching in an OTA program, occupational therapy has a ridiculous number of standards. And I wonder if they could reduce some of those and make it more generalized, like general health. I mean, it is. We are supposed to cover it. And I do, but it's one lecture. Oh, so, I see. you so know, a it's a ridiculous number of standards in the in the academic didactic stuff that you're supposed to teach. Mm-hmm. And you think it's spread too thin, maybe? It's a lot. Yes, it's a lot. And we just recently had our standards updated and they say that they were mindful of that. Like OT has one of the highest number of standards of any program, but all they did was make bullet points. So a standard is something that the OTA student needs to know before they graduate so that they can take their boards and maybe pass them? Yeah, it's what the the school is responsible for teaching the students. I'm trying to find the book for the PTA exam. When I was when I graduated in 1998, it was maybe 50 pages. And this thing, I mean, it is like the size of a, a reasonable size phone book. Yeah. Come on. I know. It's two years. Like, okay. Anyway. I know. Anyway. But, but yeah, it's it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. So you had like a day to do it? Mm-hmm. We haven't done it yet. We're about to do it next week or the week after. We'll do vision and cognition. We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? 
That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at neurons. At neurons. That's pretty simple. It is, and it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this, and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. That's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right, round and round we go. This is around minute 30. What are we going to talk about next week? Optometry is a natural partner for occupational therapy. And one of the reasons why is because of how they're trained. They're um, eye doctors, but they're not physicians. The ophthalmologist is the physician, the medical doctor. Optometry in their training has this additional plant on training, this additional perspective that they're taught where they always ask the question, what can we do to make it better? Would lenses make it better? Would prisms make it better? Would eye exercises make it better? It's how do we improve it now? Where the ophthalmologist is great at consulting, he can tell you what happened, he can tell you if it's going to get better, but he's done at that point or she's done at that point. They don't give you any further direction into your rehab program. Optometrist. Yep. Neurooptometrists. So they're the ones that are going to, they can also bring in the DynaVision or the, what was the other one that NovaVision? What was um, it was the bio, wasn't it bio? Oh, she talked about bioness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. She made a tiny mistake. Oh. Um, and it had to do with the size of the screen. Remember, mm. she said it has to be really big. But but then she advocated this training. That's an online training that I've had on my blog forever that only takes up a screen. And and then the Bioness system is called the Bioness Integrated Therapy System or BITS. And that system uses really big screens, but it also uses just regular size screens. There's uh, images where the person is in their bed and there's a bedside table with a little TV on it, but not little, but like the the size of a monitor, a good size monitor. So they don't have to be ginormous. Yeah. Is it positioned in front of them? Yes. Okay. I mean, these are the images that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how accurate they are, but a lot of them are not just, can you see this bird over here? Can you see this bird? Or if you have two dots and they're floating around, now we put 30 dots on there. Can you follow the two that you had to begin Mm. with? It's also touch screen. So can you touch, can you target to the thing that you're looking at? And I get there, there's probably a bunch of different programs you can deal with, with the bits program. Mm -hmm. So for the larger screen, is that more important if somebody has a 
significant visual field cut. I wonder if it is or if their peripheral vision is starting mm -hmm. to come in. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Because she talked about expanding the field of view or helping them to be more aware of it and turn their head more to compensate. They needed to compensate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What do we got now? We are at about an hour and a half, maybe. Um, no, just an hour. Just now. Oh, that's right. That's right. We started later. I, mm -hmm. I, yeah. Thanks for letting me do that. All yeah, right. you're welcome. I actually, I took a walk. Oh, okay, good. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is interesting is that occupational therapy assistants can work on vision with people. And, and a lot of times healthcare professionals forget that the OTA could be integral in retraining for that or working on the compensatory strategies. So how so, Professor Stella? Um, I'm an OTA student. How might I get involved in assessing and treating visual field deficits of some sort? Well, the occupational therapist at your facility is probably going to recognize there's a vision problem when they do that quick screen when they evaluate the person. And they might ask the OTA to further assess. They might work with the OTA to determine what the deficits are, what the strengths and weaknesses are. And then they would work or the OTA would work with the client to uh, come up with some strategies to compensate for deficits or improve if some if they could be improved, you know, depending on what the problem is. I did try to to get her to give us some ideas for what those treatments would be like. I asked her, you know, can you give us a case study that well, how would you take them mm -hmm. through the and she kind of demurred, is that the word? She kind of didn't really go there. Do you yeah. have some treatment options mm -hmm. that would wouldn't involve like a big screen or Nova Vision mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, compensatory strategies are a really simple way to help a person who has a visual field cut, not a neglect, but a visual field cut. One of the things if they like to read, you can just you can put a an anchor on the side of the page wherever, you know, if it's the left or the right side where the visual field cut is, so that they can find where the sentence either begins or ends. And you can do that in an environment too, like on a doorway, you can put red tape on the side of the door so they can easily locate it and then work with them on scanning the environment so that they practice looking for the anchor and the anchor should be the same the same color for everything that they do that's a strategy that i used to use so they're reading across a line of text mm -hmm. and at the end of the line there needs to be something big and bold to tell them okay move mm -hmm. to the next line you can yeah you can just use like a, a red ruler you can use anything that has contrast to it. Another thing too is if they have a hard time, if like if the lines are moving a little bit because their eyes aren't, their gaze isn't stable, that would be need to be worked on. But for reading purposes, you could always um, use paper to block the lines so that you only see the line that you're reading. Just some simple things to just make it a little bit less fatiguing, less work for them to have to to do to read. But if if they want to read a book, then I think going for some vision therapy where they actually work on those you know, getting the eye muscles in order so that both eyes work together is is a it's an important thing to focus on. So there's some tricks, but they're more compensatory. You would want to mm -hmm. go after the underlying yeah. part of the pathology. Yeah. I'm terribly dyslexic. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. 
I I can read okay, but I am dyslexic. Hmm. And uh, it's crazy. Like my wife is from Finland. You know, she, her first language is Finnish and her second language is Swedish. And we have to read a lot of contracts, like for houses or for whatever it is that we're reading that day. And, you know, there'll be a couple of pages of text and she'll pick out the pertinent stuff. We just did this the other day where she was way ahead of me in the reading in English. I'm like, what up? So I'm dyslexic and I've done that thing that you're talking about where you take the page and you slip it to the next line and the next line and the mm-hmm. next line. Cause it just concentrates on what you need to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, those All are right. a couple strategies that I have. So- there's a couple of strategies. Yeah. All right. You got anything else you want to talk about? Otherwise, we're going to put in a, another Mary Warren uh, comment. Go for it. All right. Here we go. This is from Mary Warren, chapter two, minute 19. Okay. Here and your weaknesses are here. And so we got to figure out how to use your visual strengths to compensate for your weaknesses. And a tool to help the therapist understand vision, to look at it different ways and understand what the strengths and weaknesses were. So cueing is part of it and changing things and repetition, letting them do it more than one time is all part of this type of assessment. It's not an assessment where you do every single thing. You know, you it just covers a wide range of visual issues a client may have. And you go in and you first observe them in their ADLs and think about what you may be seeing, and then you test your hypothesis. Boy, he looks like he doesn't see very well. You know, like his his acuity is impaired. I like the part that she included where you find out what their strengths and weaknesses are and use their strengths to help compensate for the weaknesses. Do you have a good example of that, Deb? Yeah. So it's your person who just has hemianopia and you want them to become more aware of their environment and they can turn their head farther in the direction of the visual field cut so that they get the full uh, spectrum of what's in front of them and they can navigate through their environment better. It seems like such a simple strategy, but I have worked with people that didn't think of that until I told them and they were amazed at how much easier it was to get around their room. Mm. And then that becomes a habit that they can then a strategy that they can use to get around and and be safer, find find things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and then the other things she was talking about like giving them a lamp to spotlight the area that, you know, with, with all of their supplies, they almost seem too simple, don't they? You know, too simple. I don't know about too simple because, um, look, we do all kinds of compensatory stuff. If you've got a a hurt ankle, you use a cane for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, it is simple, but What's wrong with simple? Nothing is wrong with simple. Yeah. Maybe obvious is a better word. Mm. It seems obvious, but maybe it just seems obvious because it's something that we're taught and we do every day or, you know, often. Yeah. Okay. Being experiences of therapist, you start to realize you start to see the disconnect and you start to pull things together. Um, and, and that's the advantage of having a therapist with a lot of years of experience versus one who has no experience. But we can't, the stakes are too high. We can't wait for experience to teach you that you need to be using assessment, linking it to intervention. Because sometimes 
we get so focused on what the person's problem is, but we haven't learned what an appropriate intervention would be to help them. Yeah. I mean, that it's more than just, okay, you, you have the assessment. Now, what are you mm-hmm. going to do about it? Yeah. And yeah, was it this quote or the previous one where she was talking about experienced therapists? You know who else talked about that? He said, this is why experienced therapists are worth their weight in gold. That's Bob Tiesel. Yes. And we don't we don't think about experience because we live in a in a time especially with these young whippersnappers who are like why can't you figure out that app? You know, yeah, it's wow. like experience does have its uh its good side. It, it we're does. not just all old and doddering. Mhm. So. Yeah, I noticed that she said that too. And I remember after I graduated from OTA school, I was offered a job in a subacute facility that I would have been the only COTA and the OT came in a couple times a week. And I reached out to my favorite fieldwork educator and talked to her about it. And she said, you know, I don't recommend it because how are you going to, who are you going to um, ask questions to? Who are you going to bounce things off of when you don't know what to do? And I mean, an eight week field work is not really that much time to learn and feel confident in your skills. And I took her advice. And I think it's important to immerse yourself with people who have experience and who work to a standard that you desire to achieve. Yeah. You're big on mentors, aren't you? I am. Yeah. What Do you not agree? Um, I think, yes, I certainly have had mentors. I think most of them have been younger than me. <laughs> so well, maybe that's That can happen, right? It can. When I was an occupational therapist, I learned the most from a COTA. Now she's about my age, but she's been a COTA her entire career. And that's who I learned a lot of my um, neuro treatment from. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I've learned a lot about life from from my daughter. So there you go. My son, not so much. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Oh, he's a, yeah, he's a good kid and he has a good moral compass. I think Mm -hmm. Um, my daughter tells me like where I'm wrong. She's very specific to that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and she's right a lot of the time. Okay. Let's get back to Mary Warren and not pick on my daughter. All right, here we go. We got another quote and we're going to get Deb batted Stella to deconstruct it. These light boards where you have to do that kind of stuff, computer programs where you have to um, work on visual memory and those types of things. Those are very fluid. Those have been shown that you can improve your capabilities. In fact, there's reading or not reading, driving research where they um, worked on computerized programs that really worked on attention and working visual memory and, and saw an improvement in driving in older adults. So those types of things you can that's the very plastic system that you can work on so play video games a lot of good good detail in them and concentration and that kind of stuff video games it's weird how like a lot of the research because there's always consternation usually from parents saying well they're so violent and they're this and that but they do a lot of good for the brain i know with boys in particular or young men um, they use it as a social thing so that's good but it also increases visual acuity and decision making the the ability to make quick decisions so there are some advantages to to that that kind of play I think we did get some good ideas from her for interventions. Hmm, so. I mean, with our conversation added to it. Hmm. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Our interpretation. Some, a, a starting point for people if they 
are really stuck. Yeah, it's. I wonder what it is about vision that we don't focus on it. And maybe you're right. Maybe this for for our group of people, our peeps, they will start to think about vision more seriously and mm-hmm. help help folks. Do are we done? I think for for this one, yeah. So should we say goodbye to everybody? Probably. Uh, probably. I mean, it, it would let's be less not. rude than just ending. Uh, let's just end. No, we'll bye everybody. <laughs> bye everybody. Night, John Boy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.